You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. I want to talk about sin. I've been really looking forward to this. I've been thinking about it lately, and uh, so it formed itself into this sermon. Um, I really think sin matters, and I find a lot of joy in being able to confess my sin. So that's part of what I want to share with you. Being able to catch my sin consciously, to to sort of uproot what's happening in the unconscious parts of me, get it up where I can see it, know it, and surrender it, I think is part of this transformation process. It's a part of being the new humanity that God calls us into, and uh, I, I think God just insists on it. He doesn't want the world to keep going except in this process, this ever-renewing process. Um, I think God is just really wedded to this idea that he wants to work with us. Co-workers with God is the label that Paul gives it in the New Testament. This partnership. God is not interested in dominance, even though he is infinite and we are finite. Um, He's the creator, we're the creature, but he still wants this loving exchange, this... I think he even insists on it. He doesn't just overpower us, but waits for our meeting him, waits for our meeting her, waits for our understanding, our true presence as our true selves. I find this all very, very encouraging. We're created for new life. The Christian life is a life of change. And as I talk about sin tonight, I hope that you hear that ringing through every word I speak. We are a new creation, and we are an ongoing new creation. A new life has begun. I think sin is an encouraging topic because it opens me, I hope it opens all of us, to this newness again and again and again. So 2 Corinthians, just behind me there, declares it so clearly. The old life is gone. We can't look at each other the same anymore. A new life has begun. So this co-working with God in our new creation means in the end that we turn away from ways of being that we learned early in our lives and that we then need to consciously surrender to God's extraction of those old ways of working ourselves through. It's a little like a splinter that must be cut out, pushed out, plucked out. Particularly, I experienced this out of a little tiny child's foot. That's a little foot, right? Um, If you go with my, my image here, I've done a lot of extracting of splinters in my day. These are my twins, Joel and Ben. Some of you know them. They look a little different today. Um, They're at Lake Havasu, where my husband Rod's parents lived for many years. 
And so we went out there often, there on the boat, and we'd rummage around, and inevitably somebody comes up with a splinter. And you know, it is impossible to get a splinter out if the kid is continually kicking their foot away from you. And so it's this ongoing process of communication. I still have a lot of splinter gatherers in my life. These guys are older now too, but they, at least for some of my grandsons, and they still gather splinters as well. And so I'm still trying to convince a kid to let me hurt them momentarily <laughs> so that we can be free of this thing and healing goes forward. It's hard work to convince a little kid that really it's okay for their Nana to hurt them in the name of uh, something coming out. I think you can play with that metaphor, right? So, the history of, Christ, of the Christian church is an unfortunate story of a kind of preoccupation with sin in many, many ways. And I really don't want us to repeat that. But I also want to contradict a kind of watered-down version of Christianity that tries to make our faith all about consolation and comfort. There is much consolation for us in the arms of our Lord. But make no mistake, God will not leave you as you are. Change is at the heart of our gospel. It is our good news. So there is also desolation, a reckoning, a reckoning with who we are now in our damaged selves and the meeting with the living God by God's spirit living within us, moving us into new life. There's a real letting go, a turning around that must happen and happen repeatedly. So I do think sin matters. Without a personal understanding of sin, we miss the freedom Christ offers. Without a personal experience of naming our particular sin, we miss any chance at deep joy that forgiveness brings. Without a personal wrestling with sin, we don't stand a chance at being able to forgive others or ourselves. When I was a freshman in college, Anton LaVey came to the university campus where I was living and going to school. He was the head of the Church of Satan, headquartered in San Francisco, and I was in school just south of the city. As a relatively new Christian, this scared me, but I was determined that I should go and listen. Now, my fantasy before coming to hear him was, of course, of this rather dynamic and somehow uh, winsome satanic figure. When I got there, what I found was a very ordinary-looking man, and here was the surprise for me. What he basically said was the seven deadly sins are actually quite healthy for us, and we ought to practice them regularly. We ought to go out and try to do all seven. 
His fundamental message was that sin, as we've learned about it in our culture, this was the 1970s, doesn't matter, spiritually speaking. He didn't go into occult stuff, although my research on him told me there were occult practices offered to more advanced members. But for the public, the message was all about what we had been told was bad was actually good. Wow. <laughs> That's an old message. What you've been told is bad is really good. You've only been misled. Doing what God asks of you is misguided. It's a trick that leaves you not knowing things that you perfectly well should know. Like Adam and Eve in Genesis's garden, the message is you're not in any danger if you do as you please and eat the fruit. This idea that sin is about a mere trick or a delusion has intrigued me ever since. It really rings true to my personal experience of life and of Jesus. We are too easily tricked into thinking we've just got a better idea, a seemingly irresistible idea about how to make our lives better, and we follow it. A colleague of mine, fellow psychologist and a Jesus follower, Mark McMinn, wrote a book several years ago called Why Sin Matters. He talks in the beginning of this book about encounters with the writings of Henry Nouwen, and I know many of you are Nouwen fans. And he particularly in this book about why sin matters talks about Henry's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's great reading if you've never read it. The impact of the painting by Rembrandt on Mark and on Henry has fueled my own encounters with God. This story of the prodigal, I would suggest, is really the story of all stories. The Rembrandt painting is large there. The little one there is a Murillo version of it. That one hangs beside my bed at home. I had my own journey away from and back to God that involved a reckoning with images of God as male and with myself as less than because I am female. That's really a story for another night. Tonight's topic interests me keenly because of my own encounter with Henry Nouwen when he was writing this book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. He smoked, spoke to a small group at a conference I attended, and so I had this unique opportunity to meet one of my heroes face to face, and then to my surprise to end up in an extended conversation with him about our mutual and deep sorrow related to the ways we had sinned in our relationships with friends and loved ones. We admitted to each other in tears our tendency to obsess over our relationships and began to talk about how God was meeting us and confronting that very tendency. It was a life-changing conversation for me. Henry Nowen loved me. I continued to pray about all we had discussed for years. I came to understand 
that my error wasn't at all what I thought it was. It wasn't about what I understood as the seven deadly sins. It was about how I unconsciously used whatever power I had to, without even knowing it, try again and again to save myself, to get one of my intimates to go to the depths of me and save me if I couldn't save myself. I wanted to gain power over the people around me, only I would never have said so. I never would have let myself know so. God began to make it abundantly clear to me that my sin was deeper and far more corrupt than simply a misuse of my body, although that was part of it. It was a fundamental and tenacious part of me that was utterly convinced that I had to save myself because I was not worthy of love that was not earned. And that's the lie. The more I wrestled with myself and our unrelenting God who insisted that I accurately see myself, my true damaged self with its entrenched belief that I was unlovable, there I began to see sin from a very different angle. Sin wasn't just the behaviors listed under the traditional categories of the seven deadly sins. It was deeper and far more difficult to pin down. It involved every breath I took and every moment of God's seeking me on the horizon to embrace me. And that's still happening today. So tonight, what I hope to try to do is to look at these traditional labels for our sin in the seven deadly sins and go deeper to see the grace that awaits there. Gluttony. <laughs> By the way, these faces just crack me up. <laughs> Sorry guys, they're all men. I just needed to notice that. So, uh, we all know about comfort food, right? The attempt to Feel better by eating is as old as humankind. In my field of psychology, we've linked food to oral fixation stemming from early childhood experience, even trauma, lots of need. It's always more than just the food. And we celebrate with food. Food is the great gift that God gives us. But when we use food... In a vain attempt to control others' perceptions of us by shaping our bodies in one way or another, or perhaps it's we try to use food to shape even our perception of ourselves, I think that's where the danger comes. Bulimia, anorexia, you know the names. There are lots of uncomfortable facts out there about how our demand for certain foods, damages our planet, damages our bodies. The trick here, I think, is just to acknowledge that needs are real and we all deal with them, but then there's this whole other category that's wider than we think, but it goes under the name of addictions. Food and drink catch us there. 
You know, it was hunger, at least in part, that turned the prodigal son towards home. Maybe we need to listen to our hunger more carefully rather than eat the next helping. Lust is often listed as one of the seven. It's often listed first. I think it's the first one we might think of, right? Uh, but I think it's a misnomer in many ways. What's underneath an unchecked sexual desire that explodes into using other people's bodies for orgasms isn't really about sensuality. It's about trying to fill a kind of gap to have an experience that feels good and to gain enough power to have it again and again. Why would we refrain from a pleasurable experience? Why not have it without boundaries? And I think the key word working with the reality of sin is to admit that our passions are simply disordered. And so we need help. We need to return to a power greater than ourselves, to borrow the language of our friends in the addiction world, the recovery world. We need a savior. I don't like the word lust. I would suggest that a much better word is unchastity. It's the denial of the human inclination to be pure. It's the elevating of get what I can while I can, whenever I can, over a real part of human nature, I think, that longs for a purity. To be chaste, after all, means to be morally pure. We think of it in terms of sexual behavior. To be chaste is to refrain from sexual intercourse outside of marriage. We all can chant these things. But that seems way too narrow to me. To say this more broadly, to be chaste is to be focused on a surrender of my goals for my joy. To be chaste is to be focused on a surrender of our goals for our joy. To believe, like really believe, like put it into the practice of our lives, that God is with us, loving us, and making joy possible in our lives. These are not easy concepts to put into daily lived experience, but this is the place where I think we meet God. This doesn't even look like a human being to me, <laughs> but uh, maybe that's what Andy does, with, uh, does to us. If you look in... Um, Webster's, I think this is a close definition for envy, painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another joined with a desire to possess that same advantage. So I would put before you tonight that we are all envious. If you think you're never envious, I would suggest you haven't looked very hard. Check again. <laughs> I think envy is very hard for us to see in ourselves. And I think it happens in our most intimate relationships. 
we sort of, as human beings, even the way our brain is set up, we get a view of ourselves. It may not always be a pretty view of ourselves. It can have negative elements to it, but it's a view of ourselves that we somehow come to accept. And we get fixated on that view. It's very hard for us to then see anything that would contradict or be outside that sense of ourselves. We select out of our environment cues that confirm this particular bias. It's just the way the human brain works. Now for Christians, what that means is that we latch on to things aspirationally, we wish for them, right, that are good. But sometimes, most times I'm afraid, that that very longing has to be lived out in this day-to-day -day encounter with Jesus. Otherwise, we got trouble because of the way our brain works. We're going to think we're friendly or loving or any of those things we aspire to because of the way our brain selects information. So back to envy. What might be under envy? Go back to that desire to control our joy, to pursue happiness in the ways we learned when we were little. Even when they don't work, we keep trying them. Envy is sort of an obsessive quality that gets going in us and we get fixed on what someone else has or even the quality of their personality and that becomes representational for us of the things that we long for and don't have. The way this cycle works then, we end up chasing that or sulking about that or fantasizing about that and we are no longer living in the present moment. We are missing the good that is right there in our lives given to us. And in this way, we kick our foot away from the hand of God who might be removing a splinter. Anger. We human beings experience emotion, and it's even the way it's built into the neuroanatomy of your brain. We experience secondary emotions. Those are more easy for us to name. And then we have primary emotions that are harder. We tend to stay away from primary emotions because they make us feel powerless, vulnerable, helpless, Anger is one of those secondary emotions. It's a signal that change needs to happen, that there are primary emotions at play, bubbling up. There's hurt or something happening at a deeper level. This signal for change that anger can be, that somehow we feel violated by another, by a system, by something or that we feel that something is being taken away from us. Again, the loss of power, do you hear it kind of coursing through all that I'm saying? Stirs up this emotion that we, as human beings, I think often nurture and protect our anger because it's so much easier to feel than these more vulnerable emotions, often of fear or loss or longing. And thus, 
we avoid feeling the need for God. Greed, taking more than is needed. I think greed is hard. Um, how do you know how much is needed? <laughs> my mom was a really anxious person. And my dad wanted to relieve her anxiety. It was sort of the bullseye and the target of his life. She had grown up through the Depression, as had he. So particularly financial stuff made my mom nuts. And so my dad got rich. And the question is, how much is enough? For my mom, it meant my dad needed to have and be able to actually demonstrate, back then it was a passbook, not a thing on a screen, but how much you had in your bank account, right? in savings that you weren't going to need. She needed a million dollars that she would never need to touch before her anxiety could diminish. How much is enough? <laughs> That's what I've said about that. <laughs> Sloth is the old word. I like the word indolence better, and I especially want to talk about indifference to the good. I work with depressed people a lot. I've known my own particular struggle with depression. This isn't exactly what we're talking about, but I think it gets close, because I think those of us who struggle with depression may not know that it rubs right up against this sort of indolence, this kind of pressure to not act. That's how sloth gets connected with laziness in the vernacular. But I think this is deeper. I, I struggled as I thought about how to speak about this tonight because for anyone in the room or anyone who might hear this elsewhere, to think that what I am saying is depression is something you need to feel guilty for is the opposite of what I'm trying to get at. And yet, I think confronting our depression, which is work and war of a kind, involves confronting this other tendency that is not the depression itself, but it is this part of the human experience that would lull us into inactivity, which depression does too. So you can see how these get conflated and mixed up. We are told often in our culture today to take care of ourselves, and then we're given lots of ways to do it that mostly cost money, so somebody's making some money, or that involve, I don't know what, lay on your couch and stream some new story. And I have to love stories, and yes, I'm a Netflix fan, so I, I'm, I'm with you. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. But it slides towards 
this place that can consume us, and that's where sin takes us always. It's this inactive stance that ultimately leaves us just indifferent to the good that is given to us in the moment or that we could affect for someone else. The worst part of this, I think, is it just takes us out of the game of loving. You know, for the depressed person, there's not too little going on inside of them. They are not falling into laziness. If anything, they're too active in their inner world. Lots of negative voices saying so many things. So many things that are false and that must be fought. But we can easily be pushed, lulled, wooed into oh gosh, I'm just not going to do that, to an inactive place. C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend who he thought might be struggling with this particular sin. And um, he named his own sin, his chief sin, as pride. But as he was writing to his friend, he zeroed in on the key problem with this brokenness of the human spirit. And it was that it supports an indifference to the good in the present moment. We get lulled into a kind of lack of gratitude. It focuses relentlessly on whatever is wrong around us. And heavens, aren't we all tempted to that these days? I think that's all just something worthy of our consideration. And by the way, the very first treatments that we would offer in my world as a psychologist to someone who comes to us, a new client who's struggling with depression, one of the first things I would say is go take a walk. Go try to be involved with a group of people doing something good and do it with them. Do something. Break the isolation. Contradict the lie of the inactivity. So you hear again, I think, the, the way this, this particular error in our persons can couple itself with depression and really goof us up. There's this paradox, I think, in the human heart that's always going on where we can believe such contradictory things. And uh, so we can believe that we are no good at all and at the same time, we can indulge ourselves in so much self-pity and sort of ingratitude to all that is given us that would actually allow us some freedom from some of the negative self-talk that drums around in our minds. Again, I hope you don't hear me saying depression is your fault. None of this is about our fault. I don't care about fault, and I don't think God cares about fault. But there's this opportunity to turn that we never get if we don't allow these deeper processes from the unconscious to come to consciousness. Last one, pride. This is the one Lewis says is the top. I think pride is actually love turned upside down. It's the capacity to love self to the exclusion of others. 
In the prodigal, we often first see the behaviors, and we think of that as being the problem, right? Sleeping with prostitutes, getting drunk, the audaciousness of asking for an early inheritance. But isn't it also underneath all that the belief that he is the exception to the rule, that he could prosper without guidance from his father, without the boring routine of work, a sort of infantile fantasy that life would just roll out gloriously before him as he enjoyed every pleasure without hesitation or even real consideration. A good way to measure your pride, Lewis would tell us, how you might notice it is by how angry you get when you think someone else is behaving in a way that is proud. I thought that was a pretty good Geiger counter. Yeah, that, <laughs> that works. Um, here, here's a quote. How much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me? Or when other people show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I want to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. I think pride, though, takes different forms. And um, I've had to really work in, in that struggle that I mentioned earlier about being a female in the church that was so dominated, particularly in my coming up years, by the patriarchy. And so I was often in the position of trying to offer my gifts and being overlooked. Literally, people would thank Rod for something I did. <laughs> and, and, and he was appalled with me, but it still continued to happen. And, and in that place, I think I was lulled into thinking, well, I, I don't really have a problem with pride. And then as my life progressed and I got some power of my own and I was leading a department at a university and suddenly I realized, oh, maybe so. <laughs> maybe there is something more in me about wanting my way, about these unconscious fears getting attached and how I have to be aware of the movement of God day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute in order to keep in this thing as a prodigal, to keep in the embrace of God, turning and turning. You know, psychological research is almost comically lopsided when it comes to our, our look at human beings and how we look at ourselves related to what I say, the topic of pride. We consistently overestimate ourselves. It, uh, I, some of you may know some of these. I, I just think they're worth repeating because they're pretty funny. It seems like on every scale we're prone to this. You've probably heard that the vast majority of us drivers rate ourselves as above average. Statistically, that's impossible. Getting that? We can't all be above average. Yeah. <laughs> right? Average means most. Most yeah. of us. <laughs> But that's how we think about ourselves, and that's how we rank ourselves when we're asked. 
One researcher asked over a million high school students how they got along with their peers. They all rated themselves as average or above. Nobody was below average in how they related to their peers. 60% believed they were in the top 10%. 25% believed themselves to be in the top 1%. Lest you think that smart people aren't involved, college professors were also then asked to rank themselves in terms of how they taught. What was the quality of their teaching? 2% re reported they were below average. I imagine they quit the field rather quickly. 10% saw themselves as average. 63 as above average, and 25% of those surveyed thought they were exceptional. All of this is, of course, statistically impossible. We are not, we just are not who we think we are. And I would say that we too lowly esteem the things that God counts as important within us. We do not see the realities of the love and grace poured out in our direction, that we are the beloved and favored. We miss these things, but we still long for them. The inner self still longs for love far more than self-love. More than our own pursuit of happiness, more than our own idea of what's going to give us joy, more than our own attempts to be good, we have the invitation from God over and over to return home. Begin each day there. Be open to the hidden surprises that we will only see when we see our sin. It's there that it will be revealed to us the ways we can turn and grow and run into the arms of our longing and waiting and loving God. Let me leave you with this quote from Lilius Trotter that's really encouraged me this week. I am seeing more and more that we begin to learn what it is to walk by faith when we learn to spread out all that is against us, all our physical weakness, our loss of mental power, our spiritual inability. Spread that as sails to the wind and expect them to be the very vehicles for the power of Christ to rest upon us. It is so simple and self-evident, but so long in the learning. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.